Hello and welcome to the Unit 10 uh, podcast review. Uh, this review will cover the Industrial Revolution, the unification of Austria-Hungary and Germany, as well as imperialism in Africa, China, and moving into World War I. If you don't have your study guide in front of you, take a moment, get it out in front, and uh, let's go over things. We'll start with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the first thing you need to know is I am not going to be asking you questions about who invented what uh, tool. However, it is a good idea for you to know what machinery is associated with what industry. Uh, for example, a question that you might see ha might have something to do with uh, the seed drill was most strongly associated with what portion of the Industrial Revolution. And that the correct answer to that would be the agricultural revolution. If you remember, the agricultural revolution was essentially a transformation in the way agriculture worked in Great Britain. Um, first, you have a movement towards enclosure, and what that means is essentially that large landowners began closing off portions of their property. Uh, this is a huge transformation in the way agriculture had worked. While there had certainly been privately owned land uh, prior to the Industrial Revolution, there were very few cases in which borders were actively defined by uh, either hedgerows or uh, gated sort of uh, fences um, that kept people from crossing from one field to another. Um, the purpose of closing off land like this was to allow landowners to use more efficient uh, means of farming, but what it does is essentially it, it prevents small farmers who had been in the habit of grazing their sheep or planting unused areas, uh, it, it prevents them from being able to learn to um, earn a, a living. So because of the enclosure movement in Great Britain starting in the late 1700s and moving into the early 1800s, uh, many small farmers wind up losing their jobs and they start moving into urban areas looking for new work. Now. Most small farmers had had some background in secondary production. Very often the term used is the domestic system or the cottage industries. Because if you understand how farming works, during the winter seasons there is very little for a farmer to actively do. Instead, generally people were involved in the production of some kind of goods. Um, a man might be involved in um, woodcraft, he might be a cabinet maker, he might do some sort of woodworking or or uh, work as a cooper making barrels during the winter. Um, his wife during the winter might weave cloth that can then be sewn into clothing. Um, his children might even be involved in this sort of production. So there had been small-scale industrial production on a house-by-house -house basis prior to the Industrial Revolution. However, really at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, you see a move in away from the cottage industry and into large-scale production. This is largely because you have the rise of a new economic system, capitalism. Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776, which advocated that private businesses should be essentially allowed to rent free. Uh, the market should not be dictated by the government. There should be very, very few governmental controls on business, if any at all. 
Um, and because of this, uh, it's widely accepted in, in Great Britain. Because of Adam Smith's work, um, the English Parliament, the British Parliament, pardon me, um, passes a series of laws that are very favorable towards uh, capitalist production, towards private enterprise. Because of this, you wind up with an early establishment of factories in Great Britain. Additionally, Great Britain has the incredible advantage of having a rich colonial um, backdrop to pull from. They have many colonies, particularly uh, colonies in the Caribbean as well as colonies in uh, India and later on in Africa. All of these colonies will provide raw materials that can then be made into finished goods in British factories and then turned around and sold back to the colonies at a high profit. So these are some of the reasons why Britain industrializes quickly. The first major uh, industry to industrialize, to uh, use modern uh, technology in order to produce it, um, is textile production. Everybody has to wear clothing unless you want to either freeze to death or be arrested. Um, and therefore, there is always a market for clothing. Because Great Britain has access to India, which is one of the world's great cotton producers. Uh, great Britain had plenty of raw materials in the form of cotton. Now, the problem is, is that with this bulk of cotton, um, cottage industry forms of production in terms of textiles was simply too slow. So instead you have small innovations begin. Um, first you have to deal with this massive amount of, of cotton and so people would invent new ways to clean it more quickly. Well now you have clean cotton that's ready to be spun into thread so people would invent the spinning jenny that would spin thread more rapidly. Now that you have more thread uh, you have the ability to weave more quickly and this in, uh, invention leads to the flying shuttle. So, uh, textile production is one of the earliest things to be industrialized. However, industrialism goes from textile production to household furniture to um, everything to uh, food. You'll wind up with uh, canned food during this time period. Um, but we also wind up with the productions of, of complex mechanical objects. Um, the industrial age is not just an innovation in how we make us make stuff or how quickly we make stuff or how cheap it becomes once it's mass produced. Industrialism also results in a complete transformation in the way the world works, basically through communication. Between the years of 18 70 and 1910, we have a number of major, major developments. Uh, beginning in the late 1850s, there had been an effort to lay a transatlantic telegraph cable. It finally succeeds in the 1870s, thus allowing Europe to uh, telegraph directly to the Americas. Um, within a matter of minutes. Um, this essentially is the moment at which the world shrinks in terms of the time it takes for information to travel. Telegraphs are uh, sent via electrical signal, um, uh, patterns of dots and dashes known as Morse code, which was invented by Samuel Morse. This is also the era that shows uh, the beginnings of other 
uh, sorts of inventions, the phonograph by uh, Thomas Alva Edison, as well as the incandescent light bulb. Um, we have people like Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who invents the first uh, suspension bridge, where no one had thought that that sort of uh, bridge construction would ever work, and yet he proved it possible. Um, there are a number of other inventions, far too numerous to, to mention, um, the most important being the steam engine, which is originally uh, designed to pump water out of flooding mine shafts that will allow people to gain more coal, which will fuel more uh, factories. Um, but the steam engine will eventually be turned on its side and used to power rail lines, so you'll have railroads that allow people to get goods to market much, much more quickly. Um, we'll also see the invention of the automobile, powered flight in the form of the first airplane designed by Wilbur and Orville Wright, um, the Wright brothers in 1902. Um, we will also see the development of the radio. Now. Industrialization does a number of really great things. Um, it also produces a number of major, major problems. Because people poured into the cities looking for these new jobs, um, there were major problems with overcrowding. The cities were never built to hold so many people in such conditions. And so there is essentially temporary housing that becomes permanent. Um, these are called tenement housing, uh, tenement houses, and they are very, very closely constructed um, and densely populated apartment complexes, um, usually with very poor ventilation, poor sanitation, um, very often without indoor plumbing or running water, very often without electricity. Um, and because of the overcrowding, you have serious problems with pollution, serious problems with epidemic diseases, and you have major problems with sewage disposal. Um, for example, in London in 1858, um, the overcrowding of London had reached the point that uh, all of the pits and skips where people dumped their waste were draining into uh, the Thames, the river that goes through London. Um, and the summer of 1858 was quite warm, and because of this, um, there was a mighty stink coming from the river. In fact, it is in fact it is uh, referred to as the Great Stink. Um, the stench was so bad that Parliament had to hang curtains soaked in lye uh, from the chamber windows in order to be able to get through their dis their business. Now, as a result, um, from the problems that industrialism creates, you do have some major reform movements. Uh, for example, in response to the Great Stink, Parliament uh, issued bills that required the construction of all new sewers and sanitation measures, thus cutting down on outbreaks of diseases like cholera and dysentery. But you also had major other pro uh, other solutions that were offered. Um, one of the major problems that had developed during industrialism were, were the conflicts that um, workers had with their uh, managers. Um, workers were subject to all sorts of indignities during the early years of the Industrial Revolution. There were no restrictions on what uh, a factory owner could do, if you remember the fact, uh, the Triangle Fire. That's a pretty darn good example of what could happen um, in an industrial system. Most wages were very, very low. Women earned about a quarter of what men earned. Um, there were no limits to how young a child could be before they worked, so you had kids as young as six and seven years old on the factory floor. Um, 
because of this, you do wind up with some pushback. Eventually, um, London, uh, London, excuse me, Great Britain will pass the Factory Act, which will require that uh, children work shorter hours if they work at all. But you'll also have some serious changes in the way people think. People will offer new ideas in comparison to strict capitalism. You'll have people who suggest utopianism, moving off into secluded areas as a small community and essentially sharing everything that you create. Um, you have the development of socialism and state socialism, where all enterprise is either owned by the public or by the state, depending. And then you have the development of an idea which will be quite influential for the remainder of this course. Um, this is an idea suggested by Karl Marx, who wrote a book called Das Kapital. Um, he also wrote uh, the Communist Manifesto. Marx's idea is generally known as communism. In Marxist theory for communism, there is the understanding that there will be eventually a world revolution resulting in a conflict between the proletariat, the working class, and the bourgeoisie, the middle class. Eventually, the proletariat will win, and the world will enter a period of almost utopia, um, where uh, all means of production are shared by uh, the proletariat. This communism is often referred to as a dictatorship of the proletariat. Now, there are many problems with these ideas, and we will talk about them further in the next unit. All right, let's move on to nationalization, uh, nationalism and uh, unification. All right, the first thing I want you to understand is that you have got to understand what the term nationalism means. Um, remember, it's not patriotism. Nationalism is the belief that uh, one particular nationality or ethnicity um, should be independent, should be able to unite and be an independent nation. So when we talk about like nationalism in the Balkan Peninsula, we're talking about nationalism for all the different ethnicities within that area. All right. Um, so make sure you understand the difference between nationalism and nation state. Um, let's start off with Austria-Hungary. Okay. Austria-Hungary really just begins as the Austrian Empire. If you remember back to the French Revolution, um, Austria is quite powerful. That's where Marie Antoinette is from. Um, the Austrian Empire contained at this point, uh, and we're talking about 1840, um, contained Austria, what is now Austria, Hungary, um, many of the Eastern European nations, as well as part of Italy. Um, it was an extensive territory. Now, there are a series of revolutions that spread across Europe in 1848, and one of them, or several of them, I should say, uh, take place in the Austrian Empire. However, they are rapidly put down, and uh, nothing really comes of this. But what does result from the revolutions of 1848 is a growing understanding that the Hungarians within the Austrian Empire have become quite powerful, and it seems very likely that Austria is going to lose power to the Hungarians. So, what they decide to do is essentially divide the Austrian Empire into two separate kingdoms. This is the Auschleich. Um, I believe that's how you say the word. It's German, but basically what it means is a dual kingdom. 
Um, this Ausschluss is essentially the division of the Austrian Empire into Austria-Hungary. You have the Empire of Austria and the Kingdom of Hungary, both of which are ruled by one man. Now, Austria-Hungary will wind up essentially sharing some government ministries, having separate parliaments for each kingdom, um, but they are the same nation. They are just made up two different kingdoms. Now, the problem is that Austria-Hungary is comprised of at least 11 different ethnic groups. Um, and while the Austrians are quite happy because they're represented in their parliament and the Hungarians are happy because they're represented in their part of the government, um, everybody else is not. You have Serbians, you have Ukrainians, you have Romanians, you have Bosnia and Herzegovina, you have a number of different ethnicities, all of whom will want representation. Remember, this is the Balkan powder keg. This will lead us directly into World War One. Okay, now speaking of World War I, let's talk about the unification of Germany. If you remember your map of Germany, Germany was a big old mess, a bunch of independent princedoms, and they all pretty much spoke German, and most of them were Protestants, but some were Catholics. So it was just this big mix of different countries. Now, in all these German-speaking countries, you really have two dominant forces. The first is Prussia. Remember, Prussia is kind of up by the Baltic Sea. It is over there by, uh, it's kind of in between um, Russia and what is modern day Germany, okay? Um, Prussia was a Germanic speaking area. It was quite powerful. Now, to the south, you had Austria Hungary, and they were quite powerful as well. So what happens is in the uh, early 1830s to the 1840s, there's a movement to form the German Confederation, which is a loose grouping of all the Germanic states. Now, the two major forces in this confederation are Prussia and Austria. Um, Prussia has a king at this point in time named King Wilhelm I. And King Wilhelm I has a right-hand man, a prime minister, um, by the name of Otto von Bismarck. Now, both Wilhelm and Otto von Bismarck are very conservative. They do not like a lot of the liberal reforms that are occurring in Europe. They do not like socialism. Um, they are not big fans of this. Otto von Bismarck really has one major goal. He wants to unify all the German-speaking princedoms into one country and have that country be under Prussian control. Otto von Bismarck is a practitioner of what we call real politic. Um, he believes that it is perfectly acceptable to do whatever needs to be done in order to make gains for one's country. If this means you break a treaty, then you break a treaty. If this means you start a war, then you start a war. And Bismarck is quite fond of doing this. In fact, he himself starts three separate wars. He starts one against Denmark over a territory called Schleswig-Holstein, um, which you don't need to know the names of, but basically he and Austria, he gets Austria to fight this war with him, um, attack Denmark for some German-speaking territories, and they will wind up dividing who gets which territory. This gives Bismarck the excuse he needs to attack Austria. Um, it's a complicated reason, but all you need to know is Otto von Bismarck goes to war with Denmark in 
in order so that he can go to war with Austria later on. But this war with Austria is going to be quite important because he will gain all control of the Northern German Confederation. All the nor Northern German princedoms will fall under Prussia's control. However, he still doesn't have the southern German princedoms. And so what he does is he looks for a reason to draw the southern princedoms together. And he's not sure he can really come up with a good reason for it. But he does know that the southern German princedoms really hate France. And so Otto von uh, Bismarck will wind up creating a war with France. Remember the Ems Telegraph, where he alters the text a little bit to make it sound as though he's in, uh, the, as though King Wilhelm I has insulted France. This will result in France being furious at Germany um, and will unite uh, northern and southern Germany in the Franco-Prussian War. At the end of the Franco-Prussian War, all of Germany is united, we have a modern German state, and uh, Wilhelm I becomes Kaiser Wilhelm I. Remember, Kaiser being German for Caesar. After the Kaiser's death, um, you will have the throne go to Wilhelm II. Wilhelm II will trick Otto von Bismarck into resigning, and Wilhelm II will be in control when we talk about World War I. All right, let's run on down to imperialism in Africa. Okay, basically what I'd like you to know is what's going on generally in some of the larger areas of Africa. So I would like for you to know that in Egypt, the main concern is over who controls the Suez Canal. This is largely because if you control the Suez Canal, you control trade into the Indian Ocean. And this means a lot of money. Now, Initially, the Suez Canal is, is the property of the Egyptian people. However, Egypt goes deeply into debt and will wind up selling their shares to the British. Ultimately, the British will gain control of Egypt, and although Egypt is not a colony, it is greatly influenced by British politics up until the 1950s. North Africa is largely under the control of the French. Um, this is because it's not terribly far from France, uh, across the Mediterranean into uh, what is now Tunisia and Algeria, as well as Morocco. Um, so France has great control over North Africa, and uh, Great Britain has control over Egypt. Now, in terms of the Congo, we did talk about this briefly. I won't ask you a lot about it. Um, the Congo was the private playground of the King of Belgium, Leopold II. Um, he essentially asked for and received uh, the Congo when uh, European powers were dividing up uh, Africa during the uh, a conference that they had in in, Af in in Europe to kind of figure out who got what territory. Now um, he this was called the Congo Free State, um, and it was essentially Leopold II's private playground. He was looking for rubber and ivory, both of which were incredibly valuable. Um, his policies were terribly brutal. If you didn't gather enough rubber for him or uh, bring in enough elephant tusks uh, for ivory trade, um, you very easily could lose your hand. Um, he was quite brutal. 
Um, ultimately, uh, his policies will come out, they'll come to light, um, and in the early uh, 20th century, about 1909, he will be forced to cede control of the Congo to the Belgian state proper. Remember, it's a constitutional monarchy, the king doesn't absolutely control Belgium anymore. Now, uh, the major area that we discussed that is quite important for you to understand is South Africa. Um, please look at your notes over South Africa. I do expect you to know who the Boers are, where Cape Colony is. Um, remember, the Boers are very often referred to as Afrikaners. They're Dutch. Um, Cape Colony starts out as a Dutch colony. It will become British when uh, the Netherlands are taken over by Napoleon during the Napoleonic War. So remember, the Boers try to retreat and get away from the British because the British have abolished slavery and the Boers have not. Um, so the Boers will move north and east and they will create their own territories called Transvaal and Orange Free State. Um, there will be a number of conflicts because gold and uh, diamonds have been discovered in this region. Um, the Boers will also come into conflict, conflict with the Zulus. Um, and as the British move into the Transvaal and Orange Free State regions um, in search of diamonds and gold, they will also come into contact with the Zulus. Uh, this will result in a bitter war between the two groups. Um, the leader of the Zulus is Shaka Zulu. Um, he actually holds out quite well against the British for a short period of time, but unfortunately uh, ultimately loses territory. Please know who Cecil Rhodes is and his relationship to colonialism in South Africa. Um, and please know the origins of apartheid as well as the relationship to Mohandas Gandhi uh, with South Africa. Make sure you understand what the Native Lands Act is. All right, moving on into imperialism in Asia. So we'll talk really quickly here about what I expect you to know for Asia. Ultimately, what I'd like you to understand are three major concepts. I want you to understand the Opium Wars in China. I want you to understand what the Taiping movement is, and I want you to understand uh, the Boxer Rebellion. The Qing dynasty was a Manchu dynasty, which means it was not ethnically Chinese. Um, the ruling group was from the north. Um, they had established control in the early 1700s um, and had ruled fairly well for a period of time. Unfortunately, um, as time goes by, most dynastic lines become more corrupt and the Qing were no different. Um, People were cheating at the examination systems, they were skidding money off the top, um, and there were a number of famines going on. Meanwhile, the British wanted to trade with China because China had cool stuff, but China was not interested in trading, and therefore there was sort of a breakdown in the balance of trade. So Great Britain was looking for something to trade in China that people would want, and uh, it turns out that people, once they are exposed to opium in all of its many forms, um, very often desire more. Um, so Great Britain deliberately introduces opium, which they were uh, growing in uh, their other colony of India at this point in time. Uh, Great Britain deliberately smuggles it into China to create a addictive market. Um, ultimately, 
the Qing dynasty will push back against this, and this will result in the Opium Wars. Um, sadly for China, um, it does not go well. Great Britain can outgun them with regards to their military presence, and ultimately China is forced not only to pay Great Britain reparations for the fact that the Opium Wars occurred, but they will also be forced to sign on to the Treaty of Nanking, which will give Hong Kong to the British for a 90-year lease, um, give Great Britain favored nation status, as well as opening spheres of influence for various European um, and American colonies. So the major things I really want you to pull out of the Opium Wars are this idea that there's a lot of resistance, at least on a popular level, to foreign intervention in China. Now, the Qing government really is unable to prevent Great Britain from involving itself in Chinese affairs, but that doesn't mean that the popular the, the, the population in general of China is okay with this. Um, as is shown by uh, the development of the Taiping Rebellion. The Taiping movement is begun by a gentleman by the name of Hong who believes that he is uh, the Chinese son of God, uh, Jesus's younger brother. Um, there are a number of thoughts as to why uh, he begins to believe this. He does st uh, spend some time studying with missionaries in, uh, in China, Protestant missionaries. He also um, had been a failed civil servant. He had tried to take the uh, test uh, for the civil bureaucracy multiple times, and he had failed each time. So uh, there might have been a history of, of depression or something like that. Um, additionally, um, there seems to have been a period of illness in his life, possibly a nervous breakdown, but also just possibly something with a very high fever um, that might have affected his uh, brain. But at any rate, when he recovers from this period of illness, he becomes convinced that it is his job to uh, end the Qing dynasty, which he views as tools of Satan, and to drive foreigners out of China. The Taiping movement lasts for over a decade and is actually quite powerful. Um, he evidently was quite a charismatic uh, figure and was able to draw a number of people to him. Um, this is a remarkable movement, not just because of the mobilization that it uh, exhibits in southern China and or its staying power, but also for its gender relations. While the Taiping movement does practice strict gender uh, segregation in terms of um, uh, barracks for women and barracks for men and uh, women being separate from men in pretty much every aspect of daily life, it is remarkable because women were ultimately equals of men. Um, they served as soldiers. They served in all capacities during the Taiping Rebellion. Um, to this end, the Taiping Rebellion was also a force against the practice of foot binding, because if women are going to serve as soldiers, they cannot have their feet mutilated. Um, this won't work for the purposes of uh, traveling long distance. Okay. Um, beyond the Taiping Rebellion, it will eventually be put down by a combined force of the French, the British, uh, American forces, and the Qing Dynasty. Uh, they will all come together to, uh, to put this together. Now, this will actually, the Taiping Rebellion will cost the Qing Dynasty dearly, and uh, it costs a lot of money to put this thing down. It will essentially bankrupt the empire. 
Now, because of this period of bankruptcy, uh, there is increased resentment against foreigners, particularly the British, but also Americans as well. Um, towards the end of the, Chinese, uh, the Qing dynasty, there is a woman by the name, uh, the former empress, Xu Xi, uh, overthrows her nephew, who would then be emperor. She has him confined uh, to the forbidden uh, city within the walls of Beijing and essentially reassumes her powers as empress. She is the Dowager Empress now. So the Dowager Empress Xi Xi begins a policy of playing um, various foreign powers off one another. She gives in misinformation to the French and the British and the Americans all about uh, what various ambassadors are doing. At the same time, she funds uh, a secret society, which is uh, the Society of the Harmonious and Righteous Fist, otherwise known as the Boxers. Now, the Boxers are an anti-Western group. They want to send all foreigners out of China. Um, and so with the blessing of the Qing dynasty in the form of the Emperor Dowager uh, Shishi, uh, the Boxers begin attacking any Westerners and also Chinese Christians um, in China. Uh, the rebellion is quite bloody. The boxers believe they are impervious to bullets. Um, of course, there had yet has yet to be a case where that has been proven. Um, but at any rate, um, they fight quite fiercely, and it takes a lot of effort and a uh, multinational force in order to suppress the boxer movement in China. All right. Moving away from China and into World War One. Okay, I am not going to go through all the terminology here. What I will tell you that you need to do for World War One, since we just finished it, it ought to be fresh in your mind. Um, I do expect that you will be able to explain the complexity of the alliance system to me. Um, know who is involved in the central powers. I don't expect you to be able to name all of the individuals in the allied powers, but it would be a good idea for you to be able to tell me who is ultimately allied with whom. So Slavic kingdoms would largely be allied with Russia. Okay, Be able to give me the original causes of the war. Talk about nationalism, um, how this relates to the assassination of the Archduke of Austria-Hungary, excuse me, the Archduke of Austria-Hungary, uh, Franz Ferdinand, by uh, Gavril Princep, a Serbian nationalist. Um, be able to tell me a little bit about what trench warfare is, um, how technology changed the weapons used in World War I, and what effect this had on the troops. Be able to tell me how the U.S. got involved in World War I. Ultimately, it does seem like a, uh, a European war. I would expect you to be able to tell me a little bit about the Gallipoli campaign, but I'd expect a lot more from you about the impact of World War I on the Middle East. So be sure you know who Prince Faisal is, um, that you know why the British are involved in instigating a uprising in the Arabian Peninsula, and know what the Balfour Declaration is. Please, please, please know what the Balfour Declaration is and how it relates to the potential founding of Israel. Okay. Um, beyond that, uh, please make sure that you understand the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. Um, this will lead us directly into World War II. If you don't understand the war guilt clause in the Treaty of Versailles, um, 
the election of Adolf Hitler to power in, 19, uh, in the 1930s in Great Britain is not going to make a lot of sense. All right, guys, study hard, and I'll see you in class tomorrow. Good luck!